Hi, I'm Joseph Marx, and this is EconoPolitics, the official podcast of the Economics and Politics section of LASA. Each week, we engage with section members and professional colleagues working in the region and dealing with many of the same issues that we follow. Our aim is to promote greater dialogue and creative synergy among all. Welcome to today's show. Welcome to another episode of EconoPolitics. Today's guest is Michael Stott, Latin America editor for the Financial Times. Michael is a long-term observer of Latin America with postings in Brazil, Colombia, and Mexico, and with the added advantage of experience in Japan and Russia. So Michael, we're delighted to have you on the program. Welcome. Thank you, Joseph. Thank you very much for the invitation. It's a pleasure to be with you. Michael, I, I know you've just returned from Argentina, so we're very keen on uh, getting your impression of uh, the economic situation there, both from a domestic perspective, as well as the view from the international investment community. Well, thanks, Joseph. I think my impression started to be formed on the flight over from Madrid when I sat next to a young Argentine lawyer who told me he was working in London He'd left the country to work abroad, and he told me that all his friends were doing the same thing. And when I arrived in Buenos Aires and started to talk to colleagues there and friends, uh, I discovered that indeed large numbers of people were leaving the country, including some of the leading members of the business community who'd moved across the river plate to Uruguay. And this is a reflection of how difficult things have got in Argentina with the economy. So inflation is now running at more than 50% a year. There was a very severe recession last year, one of the worst in the region. And uh, the recovery is, is coming this year, but it, you, know, you can see walking around Buenos Aires, the number of boarded up shops, the number of people who tell you they've been through a very difficult time, that uh, you know, people are really suffering now. Yeah. Um, and the negotiation and relations with IMF? Well, that's a difficult story. So last year, Argentina reached an agreement with private creditors to reschedule more than $50 billion, which it owed to them. And the hope was that this would open the way for a deal with the IMF to reschedule another 45 billion of debt owed to the IMF. Unfortunately, that hasn't happened. And so more than a year now has gone past. And although both the Argentines and the IMF say that they're continuing constructive discussions, there has not actually been any concrete progress to date. And some people in Buenos Aires will tell you that the concerns are mounting that a deal may not get done in time for March next year, which is when some big repayments come due, which Argentina is unlikely to be able to pay without a fresh deal with the fund. Right. And was this uh, dire situation visible on the streets walking around Buenos Aires? What? What, what kind of yeah, impression? so quite a lot of shops uh, closed down, businesses that have gone, gone under, and of course the price controls. So now um, shops are, have been told that the prices of more than 1,400 household items have been frozen until January. This is a sort of last ditch attempt by the government to try to con control inflation, uh, in particular ahead of midterm elections coming up on the 14th. And so they've issued a document of nearly 900 pages, which sets the prices for all these 1,400 goods in all of Argentina's different provinces uh, in an attempt to try to bring inflation under control. But of course, what people will tell you in Buenos Aires is that this is a recipe that's been tried many times before, and it never works. Yeah, yeah. Moving on to Chile, um, 
this would seem to be a newspaper editor's dream. Um, you've got upcoming elections, you've got the writing of a new constitution, you've had a period of great um, civil unrest. Um, how do things look at the moment regarding Chile? I would say very uncertain, Joseph. I think you know the, the sort of business and political elite have been profoundly shaken by the events that began with the uprising in October 2019 uh, and, and by the, uh, the protests that then continued after that. And it's, it's completely changed Chileans' sort of self-image. I mean, they were very comfortable with this idea. They were a model for the region. They were an example of progress and stability and steady economic growth. And while things were not perfect and there were certainly issues of inequality and of equality of opportunity and so on, and of the quality of public services, you know, Chileans were generally proud of what they'd achieved. That's almost now been turned on its head. And the country is sort of questioning almost everything about its model, about its constitution, about the way it's governed, about the way business is done. Uh, and it's all up in the air. So as you, as you say, Joseph, we've got two big events. One is the election uh, later this month for a new Congress and the first round of a presidential election. And then at the same time, the Constitutional Assembly is sitting to write a new constitution. And those two processes are sort of going on at the same time, which is also quite messy because of course one impacts on the other. Uh, and it's, it's quite unpredictable. I think we've already seen the dynamics of the presidential race change quite drastically. And it's now, it seems to be polarizing between a candidate of the hard left, uh, Gabriel Boric, and a candidate of, 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 the, of the hard right, um, Jose Antonio Cast, uh, which was completely against the expectations of, of months ago when the, the idea was that it would probably be the sort of center left, the center right who were competing. So uh, really hard to know how that will play out um, you know, later this month, but it, uh, it looks like Chile is gonna embark on quite a different path in the next years to the one that it's been following for the past sort of three decades. Right. Michael, I know you just got back from Glasgow and the COP26. Um, can you summarize for us basically how the region relates to the whole issue of um, climate change and, Give us a scorecard, if you will, of some of the leaders or laggards in the region regarding this crucial issue. Yes, well, if we if we start with the biggest countries, uh, Joseph, we've got Brazil and Mexico. And Brazil has been, in fact, an environmental leader for a number of years and uh, you know, adopted a, a forest protection policies uh, sort of more than a decade ago which were among the most strict in the world and has a very good green sort of energy mix. It uses a lot of biofuels, the ethanol that's grown from sugarcane um, and also heavy use of hydropower. So the irony of all this was Brazil was actually very well placed as a sort of emerging green power. But then along came President Bolsonaro who had a very different idea in particular about, about the Amazon and his uh, his support base in part includes ranchers, loggers, and some of the people that are exploiting the Amazon. And they saw him very much as an ally. Uh, he in turn has responded by saying the Amazon should be open to development and has weakened the protections for the Amazon. And then of course that's led to a surge in deforestation and to illegal clearing of the forest, which has completely ruined Brazil's image as an environmental champion ahead of the COP. And so it was no surprise to anybody that Bolsonaro didn't turn up in Glasgow 
he went to the G20 meeting in Rome just before, so he was in Europe, but he didn't go on to Glasgow. He, uh, he, he went on elsewhere. Um, so that was Brazil. Mexico, again, had been moving in a, in a more progressive direction on the environment. It had been encouraging renewable energy. It had been promoting private investment. There were a lot of quite promising solar projects in particular. Uh, and companies getting involved in those. But uh, Andres Manuel López Obrador, the uh, leftist president, is a nationalist and an energy nationalist at that, who is very in love with the state oil company Pemex and sees that as a national champion. He's poured billions of extra money into it, and he's building a massive new oil refinery, uh, quite an extraordinary thing to do at a time when a lot of companies are trying to get rid of oil refineries. Um, and he's clamped down on the private investment in renewables. So he's yanked Mexico off in a totally different direction. So it, it's a rather grim picture from the two biggest countries in the region. That's offset, it has to be said, by a much more positive attitude from the Colombians and the Chileans, uh, who are both pursuing renewable energy projects. Colombia's President Duque was in Glasgow, uh, touting a commitment to expand Colombia's protected areas to a third of the country's territory, uh, he signed a deal for a big new marine reserve with neighboring Ecuador, Costa Rica, and Panama. Uh, and he's pledging to, to get to zero deforestation in, in 2030. And the Chileans are trying to become pioneers in green hydrogen. So they're one of the best placed countries in the world to generate solar and wind power. Um, and they think they can harness that to uh, produce large quantities of green hydrogen, that's hydrogen produced without any emissions, and then export that hydrogen in a liquid, liquefied form as a fuel for other countries and develop a whole new export industry. So uh, a lot still to be proven there in terms of technology and business, but Chile and Colombia are certainly aiming high on the environment. Right, great. Moving on to Brazil, um, a place you know well, what is the likelihood of success for a third way candidate, what they call Terceira Via in, in Brazil? Uh, there's a couple of... Uh, uh, rising stars, the young governor from uh, Rio Grande do Sul, and a few other people. Um, any, what's the likelihood of one of these uh, candidates may, in fact, um, uh, find his or her way all the way to to the ballot box? And what is the role right now, in your opinion, of let's say big business in this effort of trying to clear the way or facilitate the choice of, a, of an alternative uh, third way candidate? Yes, that's a very interesting question, Joseph. And I think many of my friends in Brazil are really praying and hoping that they will get a third way candidate. I think that there's an awful lot of Brazilians, particularly professional Brazilians, Brazilians in banking and business who would love to see a sort of sensible, pragmatic third-way candidate who can pull the country out of this very extreme polarization, which it's found itself in, um, between Bolsonaro on the one hand and, and Lula on the left. Um, the difficulty, I think, is that not just in Brazil, but you know, we're seeing this globally, there's an extraordinary degree of political polarization everywhere. I think, you know, driven in large part by social media. Um, which encourages that kind of extremism in, uh, in politics and, uh, and makes it easy for more extreme candidates to get platforms and to win more support. So, you know, the Brazilians are fighting there a sort of global tide. And at the moment, the opinion polls suggest that, you know, a third way candidate would really struggle. That said, we're at least a year away from the election. And, you know, Brazil is a country where things can change quickly. So, 
there is certainly a possibility that if, uh, for example, President Bolsonaro were to continue losing support to a point where he really struggles to be a viable candidate, then you could see perhaps a, another candidate come in there with a real chance of making it to the second round of the presidential election. But you know, there's an equally plausible scenario that says that Lula, based on the current polls, could win in the first round. So I think there's a lot there that we still don't know, and we're going to have to see how that plays out over the election campaign. Did, did you um, recently interview the uh, the governor from uh, Rio Grande? And what, I, what... I did, Joseph, yes, uh, Eduardo Leche, who's you know, a young, uh, rising political figure, I would say, uh, on the sort of center right of the political spectrum. And I think, you know, he's been admired for the way he's governed Rio Grande do Sul. Um, he's, he seemed to have done quite a good job down there. He faces, though, a number of very large hurdles to get to um, even being in the race. I mean, he's first got to be adopted as a candidate by his own party, the PSDB, um, which is a party that produced a president in the form of Fernando Enrique Cardozo, who was a very successful president, but has since struggled and, and has lost support. And he's not their candidate yet. He's being challenged for that role. He's got to win a party primary later this month if he's going to be the candidate. And then, of course, once he becomes, you know, if he becomes the candidate, he's then got to try to persuade other people in the center to make way for him or ally with him to make sure his vote isn't cannibalized and he can then have a chance of emerging as a real challenger. So, you know, there's a long way to go. There's a lot of odds stacked against him. But again, you can say when, when in a very different circumstances, Bolsonaro set out on his election campaign, nobody gave him a chance at all. He was seen as a, as a very fringe candidate with minimal opportunity of winning. And he went through to win. So, you know, anything is possible in Brazilian politics. Right. You and your staff talk to business uh, every day. Do you, do you get a sense of um, what Avenida Paulista or now Avenida Faria Lima think about the upcoming election? Or uh, I think they're very concerned. Um, they would love to have a third-way candidate. They are not happy about how Bolsonaro has played out. I think business in Brazil, a lot of business people backed Bolsonaro because they felt it was time for a change. They were hopeful that he would reform the economy uh, in a positive way, make it more competitive, remove some of the barriers to doing business in Brazil, improve infrastructure, simplify taxes, cut some of the benefits for excessive benefits for the public sector, and so on. But very little of that has actually happened. Bolsonaro delivered on a pension reform in the public sector, and then that was about it. Uh, and the rest of his agenda got bogged down very quickly. And now, in fact, he's embarking on uh, you know, a very big welfare spending program, uh, which critics say is aimed largely at shoring up his support ahead of the election. So he's doing a lot of the things he criticized the left for. So I think Faria Lima and the business community are, are, are dismayed by that. They, they hoped he would be a, a good president for the economy and for business. And actually, he's ending up scaring markets and scaring investors um, you know, in a way more reminiscent of, of left-wing populists. And of course, they're, they're unenthusiastic about a return of Lula because um, the PT that was in power for a long time earlier this century, you know, ended in a very severe recession under Dilma Rousseff and an impeachment uh, and an economic mess. So it, it's a very unenviable choice. And I think for that reason, they're, they're very keen on a third-way candidate, but, but whether or not the space for one, I think still remains to be seen. Right. 
I'm sure you and your team spend a lot of time monitoring what China does in the region, but I wonder the two former stomping grounds of yours, Russia and Japan, if, um, if there's anything significant to point out regarding um, their role in the region recently. Yes, well, I think the Russians have, you know, been more active in certain areas, but their engagement in the region has been more limited. So they were principally involved in, in Cuba and Venezuela in providing support to the governments there, uh, intelligence and military support as well, in particular, and in Venezuela in trying to help the, uh, the oil industry uh, circumvent US sanctions. Um, but, you know, Putin's Russia is a, is, is a very sort of profit-driven government. It's not that ideological. And so the Russians, if they can't make money, generally are not that interested. I mean, they will, they are happy to lend sort of um, words of support, but they're not going to hand out large loans and huge credits if they don't think there's any prospect of being paid. So again, both in Cuba and Venezuela, in fact, Venezuela, what you've seen in the last couple of years is, is the Russians taking money out. Uh, you know, Rosneft, the state oil company, insisting on being repaid by Venezuela and, and no fresh money coming. Uh, so, you know, the, the Russians, as I say, a more pragmatic engagement. Um, where the Russians tried to do some real business was with their vaccine, with the Sputnik vaccine. Um, and, you know, they scored a success in Argentina where the government gave them a big order. But then, of course, they ran into production problems and weren't able to deliver. So they fell well behind on the delivery schedule and, and as a result, didn't come out of it very, very well. Um, so well, that's on the Russian side. On the Japanese side, I think, you know, Japan has been engaged in the region to some extent in, in, in you know, infrastructure projects and development projects um, to a much more limited extent than it has, say, in, in Southeast Asia. Uh, and it, you know, it continues to engage there, but uh, in, a, in a much smaller way than China. And I don't think that will change dramatically because for Japan strategically, Latin America is not the same kind of priority as, as Southeast Asia, which is their sort of neighborhood and their, their more immediate focus. Right, great. Um, I could not let you come onto the program without asking you a question about the state of journalism in the region and a parallel question, the state of the business of journalism in, in the region. So um, we've seen, I think, a, a number of examples of very um, heroic work being done by, by journalists, very often smaller, smaller organizations, but uh, out there, um, uh, both broadcast um, and, and print journalism doing fantastic work under very severe conditions. Um, but on the other hand, I'm not quite sure of the business side. How do, how do you see that, uh, the couple of um, um, big corporate um, media entities, um, how does it look from where you sit? Yes, that's a, it's an interesting question, Joseph. I suppose on, on the state of journalism in the region, uh, there are a lot of positive things to highlight. I think in Brazil, you've seen, you know, a real example of a very vigorous, free, independent press, which takes seriously its responsibility to hold the powerful to account um, and has been very successful by and large in doing that. And, and I think that's 
an example really for the region that the vigor and strength of, of Brazilian journalism and the professionalism of it as well. I think you know, the quality of Brazilian journalism is high uh, and there's some really outstanding media there. Um, so you know, that, that's a very positive example. And at the sort of other end of the spectrum, in some of the smaller countries in Latin America, I think the internet has allowed um, you know, small but very nimble and uh, resourceful investigative outfits uh, to do some really interesting journalism in some of the smaller countries and smaller areas where perhaps bigger players uh, are not, not so active. So you think of something like El Faro in Salvador, for example, um, which, which I think you know, does a great job on, uh, on reporting Salvador. Uh, Armando Info in Venezuela, for example, has also done some very interesting work. So I think it's very encouraging to see journalism like that being done as well. Um, on the business of journalism, I think you've got still, you know, some of the bigger problems, which, which are global problems rather than regional ones. You know, the main one being that uh, social media and the internet giants have gobbled most of the advertising that was going to news media thereby making it very difficult for news media to fund themselves and make a profit unless they have subscriptions. And of course, in Latin America, a subscription model is a tough sell. But again, there are examples, and, and, and clearly in Brazil, Folia, Estela, Sao Paulo have both uh, succeeded with subscriptions. Um, and I think also it, it's been good for the region that, that El País of Spain has come in with a big investment, has taken Latin America very seriously, has built up a really very impressive network of correspondence for its Latin America edition, which is a completely online edition. I, I believe they now have more than 80 journalists in the region. Um, so I think it's encouraging too that, that a you know, respected international media like El País is willing to come in and invest in journalism in Latin America and in independent journalism uh, and, and do some, some good work. Um, and then, of course, you still have the sort of more oligopolistic media, which are still there in, in some countries controlled by some of the big business groups uh, who are not uh, shy to use their economic power to try to advance their political interests through the media. Um, but, hey, that's not just a Latin American problem. I mean, that, that also happens all over the world. So, I, you know, overall, I think there is a pretty vibrant media scene. There are still a lot of threats to the press. There's you know, still a lot of countries which are very dangerous for journalists. Mexico, uh, sadly, is, is one that's particularly dangerous for journalists. Uh, and it still continues to be the case that, that journalists pursuing investigative stories uh, in more remote areas are, you know, are often threatened. And intimidated, but uh, but overall, I think that there's there's plenty of vibrancy, health, vigor, and uh, and high quality journalism being done in Latin America, which is admirable. Great, Michael. As you know, our tradition here at Econo Politics is to ask our guests for a recommendation or two of the region. And uh, after so many trips and uh, and living in several different countries, I wonder what nuggets, uh, what special uh, recommendations you may have for us. Well, yes, thanks, Joseph. I, I think uh, I would highlight Colombia, which for me has always been a very special place. I think partly because um, it was the first country in Latin America which I visited as a student to teach English uh, back in the 1980s. Uh, I was lucky enough to be assigned to a, a then very remote part of southern Colombia, the city of Neva, to teach English there. And I discovered the wonders of San Agustin and Tierra Dentro, which are fabulous archaeological sites, not that well known uh, outside Colombia even now, uh, but set in really spectacular scenery. 
um, and which you know, I, I think are, are hugely enjoyable to visit. And other parts of Colombia, such as the Paquitairona up on the coast, on the Caribbean coast, which, which are truly beautiful, the Sierra Nevada, Santa Marta in Colombia is chock full of the most spectacular and extraordinary places to visit. Um, many of which I think are still not as well known as, the, as they deserve to be. So uh, I think those would be my first pick. Fantastic, Michael. We could easily have spent the entire afternoon, but we'll just have to um, get you back uh, in a couple months' time. We've enjoyed our talk, and we look forward to seeing you again. In the meantime, for sure, we'll continue to follow you on the FT. So thank you, Michael. Thank you very much, Joseph. I really enjoyed the conversation. To our listeners and followers, thank you for listening and supporting EconoPolitics. Let us know what you think of today's episode and tune in again next week for another episode of EconoPolitics. Until then, stay well, stay safe.